Number 170 was chosen and asked that we mark that, so please uh, mark that in your hymn book, your song book, and we'll look forward at the appropriate time to join our voices together in song to close the lesson in that invitation way. As was mentioned at the outset of the announcements, it is a grand occasion and a glorious blessing at that that allows us to assemble on this evening, though the conditions may be unfavorable outside, how favorable indeed they are to appreciate the loving character of God's blessing inside here. And so tonight, as you may have noted in the bulletin, as well as now on the wall to my left, why not tonight give some thought to the matters of the hair by focusing somewhat of our attention upon that issue this evening and looking at some of those matters contained in the Holy Scriptures relative to the hair itself. Some introductory comments might well be appropriate and in order. And in fact, I'd like to begin the lesson in the following way. We each are not at all shocked or surprised to find in the Holy Scriptures that God touches every aspect and every subject that involves your life and mine. In fact, He gives us that information that is so desperately needed with respect to those eternal spirits that really are you and me to ensure by His instruction that we in fact make the way through this life in the way that we should, so that heaven can be our eternal home. Those instructions that God has given by His inspired inspiration challenge us ever to be aware of the fact that no stone of life is left unturned by God's instruction, touching the matters of our speech, our conduct, even that which we think. But having said all of that, isn't it true then that He also has given information about the body? that physical entity that you and I see with these physical eyes that we have. We're so very well aware of it. We like to take care of it. We do, in fact, appreciate it is the fleshly tabernacle that we have for a little while. And yet so often God has given information about this tabernacle, the way it should be treated, the way it should be looked upon, the features concerning it, and that includes even the hair. So why not tonight at least ask some basic issues and entities about the hair? For the next few moments this evening, let's look at three central features concerning it and strive to learn some lessons about it as we consider the matters of the hair. To do that, let's begin in the following way. And first, learn this lesson as it relates to the hair. Aren't we appreciative of the fact that the hair has something to say about the natural created order of the way that God has fashioned and made things. Isn't it amazing that that little baby, as it enters the world, it may not have much hair or it may have quite a bit. But nonetheless, it will come to have its share of hair, if you please. And even as it grows older, we can appreciate that there, in fact, in totality, may be more, there may be less. Even those of us, as we've reached a much more advanced age, appreciate that some have more hair and some have less. But in every instance and in every way, we still appreciate that that was a part of God's created order. At birth, the parents didn't have to ask for it. It came about due to God's creative means and the way in which the birth process resulted in the character of the hair of that little one. In fact, look at some of the varieties in the ways that the Word of God discusses, either the way the hair is described or even the color of it. We can revisit even the birth of 
those youngsters born to Isaac and Rebekah. And well, remember that there was Esau and there was Jacob. And it would appear that Esau's hair was red even from the time of his birth. For in fact, he was called Edom on that occasion. And we well remember that that, as it related to his hair, meant red. Red hair. Even here mentioned in the early stages of the Word of God in Genesis 25, 25. But even beyond that, you'll notice that in that part of the world, that Middle Eastern part that you and I still see, as it relates to newscasts and other media reports, so often there's a rich blackness to the hair there. And the writer of the Song of Solomon made mention of such in Song of Solomon 5, verses 11 and following. Whether it be then a hair that was recognized as red, or whether it was recognized as black, we still appreciate an even larger variety to some of the features concerning it. Absalom had a great deal of hair. We read in 2 Samuel 14, 26, in fact, that when he polled it on that annual basis, 200 shekels was the weight of it. That would be about a pound of hair. That's no small amount of hair, is it? Certainly on, on the head of a man. And yet, as we appreciate that, notice what else might be affirmed. When we arrive at the New Testament, we find that very loving and rather compelling circumstance in which Mary not only, in fact, washed the Savior's feet with her tears, but of course she wiped them with the hairs of her head. John 12, verses 2 and 3. To say all of that reminds us, doesn't it, that the Scriptures have much to say about the hair upon one's head. But yet, as we grow older, and as we appreciate, there seems in at least most instances to be a turning of the hair to a gray. Perhaps you and I would recognize it as silver in some ways, and yet even the Scriptures identify things like that. The gray hair of older age, mentioned on so many occasions, finds one mention in Deuteronomy 32. And on that occasion, it's lifted to a degree of respect. It is described as one who should have a degree of wisdom, knowledge, and experience. And as Moses made reference to it, that again was lifted to a position that each should appreciate. You'll notice even beyond that one, there is an opposite circumstance. The Bible also makes reference to those that were bald, those who didn't have hair or were not blessed with that, or the time came in life that they no longer possessed such. We notice in 2 Kings verse number chapter 2, there's an especial reference to the prophet Elisha as being a man that was bald. Interesting, isn't it, to appreciate that that not only is a problem with which some wrestle today, or at least a circumstance with which they wrestle, it also was an occurrence in the days of the long past. Oddly enough, there were also those that were partially bald. Thus, it would appear that the top portion of this man's head was bald, but there was hair around the middle to lower portions. And you and I are aware of those today that also are in that circumstance as it is described in Leviticus 13.41. To say even those circumstances, it is to remind us that even these matters of the hair is something that challenges us to appreciate that this was God's created order. And as the genetics often result in these matters, you and I may find that we have little control over them. Not only the absolute color of the hair with which we're born, but the disposition of it as we arrive to later segments and portions of life. 
Perhaps one final observation, the very last one on the slide. The Bible also makes mention of that white hair. And in fact, the context is an exceedingly intriguing one. In Revelation 1, the opening chapter of the Apocalypse, we on that occasion appreciate that that one standing in the midst of those seven churches, the seven candlesticks, the one we appreciate to be the Son of God, He was portrayed as one with white hair, a sign of His honor and the respect and the dignity that accords to the fact He was the Son of God and thus the rightful disposition that He enjoyed to speak to those congregations and share with them those blessed statements of the God of heaven. Be it red, be it white, be it gray, be it these other colors of black. The Bible does mention a number of features about the hair, doesn't it? But all the while reminding us, as we shall see shortly, that those hint at just some of the things that are yet to come. In fact, at this point, it might be fair to ask, what are some real lessons that you and I could learn and apply to our life that might be a reminder from the very hair that's on our head? I would submit to you that one of the things I would hope all of us could take from a lesson like this one is that even every time we look in a mirror or appreciate the hair with which we're blessed, there are really some eternal lessons to be seen in it and some always matters that can help us remind ourselves about some true and powerful truths that we should ever keep in mind. The first one, in fact, the first several of them, I've summarized in the following way. You'll notice that the Bible, as it has reference to the various elements of the hair, it often mentions it in such a figurative way, and in some cases that reference is to a direct means it relates to either God or it relates to us. And here are some of these lessons that I would expect that we can appreciate directly. Have you and I often thought of the fact that that hair on our head should be a reminder of the protective character of God for His children? Amazing, isn't it, that something as common as the hairs on our head ought to be a reminder about the protective custody and care that God has for those who are His children. Let's consider these comments and these passages in which those references are found. First of all, might we revisit Daniel chapter 3. In that last of the major prophets of the Old Testament, we will remember that there were three Hebrew children these who were, of course, the friends of Daniel. But they found themselves in a terrible lot, didn't they? In fact, cast into that fiery furnace. But on that occasion, we will remember that an amazing thing took place. And in verse 27 of that chapter, we notice this interesting statement is made. Not a hair of their head was singed. Not a hair of their head was singed. And in that statement and in that way, we find a reference to that protection of the greatness of God's power and His providential care for those three Hebrew children. That even in the marvelous nature of that circumstance in which they were, they in fact were thrown into this place and it was expected that it would lead to their deaths. However, it did not. For wasn't it true that as the king looked in there, expecting to see but three, he saw the visage of what looked like a fourth. And this one, he said, looked as if the Son of Man in there with them, protecting them, keeping them in such a way, in such a place. 
Amazing, isn't it? That as one gives reflective thought to that, God's protection, stated in the form of not a hair of their head, singed. But yet consider another in Luke 21, 18. It was on that occasion in the gospel account, again from Luke, we find that reference one more time, that not a hair of their head shall fall. Interestingly, we notice here that protection accorded to, this time spoken by Jesus, and those who were in Jerusalem and were given these various signs about the destruction of Jerusalem. The Lord stated, if you'll follow the signs, not a hair of your head will fall. That is a marvelous guarantee of protection, wasn't it? The Lord stated, if you watch for these signs, and you remember it involved earthquakes, wars, rumors of wars, and other such matters, if you will watch diligently, carefully, and with marvelous diligence with regard to them, and flee the city when the appropriate time comes, that there shall not in head a hair of your head fall. That degree of protection we will learn from the writings of Josephus, admittedly not an inspired writer, but he does remind us that when the time came in those months preceding 70 A.D., and when those who were trustworthily watching for the signs of Jesus, when they fled the city and went to Pella, the destruction of Jerusalem came and not a single Christian lost his life in that destruction of Jerusalem. At least so Josephus told us. That is an amazing realization given the fact that he also stated that well over a million Jews lost their lives and yet not a single Christian died? Sounds as if God's promise concerning the hair came to pass, doesn't it? But yet consider another in Acts 27, 34. On this occasion, Paul and his companions were in fact making their voyage to Rome. And we well recall from our study of the book of Acts a couple of years ago that a tremendous shipwreck came upon them as a result of that powerful storm. For many days, they didn't have the stars to guide them. Neither did they have the sun or the moon. The clouds, in fact, hung so low they did not have any means for navigation, at least by way of direction. As day and night passed one after another, Paul urged them to remain in the ship. Do not jump overboard. The promise of God stated on that case was this. Stay in the ship and you'll not lose a hair of your head. One more time, that similar statement was made. And might we ask this? Under Paul's tutelage and guidance, they did remain in the ship. And how many of them lost their lives? Not a single one. All 276 of them safely crawl their way to the island of Malta. And there they found themselves again under the safety and the protective custody due to the nature of their obedience to what God had told them through Paul. In all those instances, can we not then see that the hair of the head is used again as a reminder of that powerful protection from the God of heaven toward those who will obey Him and do in fact what He has said. But the Bible makes reference to the hair of the head in other ways that should also remind us of these things. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 30, on that occasion, Jesus again speaking reminds us about the greatness associated with the knowledge and the concern and the care of God. Throughout the ages, many have labored under the mistaken presumption that God and His creation put man here and then God just walked off at a distance to watch. 
as if he doesn't care, as if he is not concerned, as if he is in fact merely at a distance. But Jesus taught just the opposite. And particularly that reference to the hair on that occasion went something like this. The very hairs of your head are numbered. Thus, when you and I perhaps see one lying on the sink, and remember, God knows that that one has fallen. He now knows the correct number of hairs on my head, and that should ever be a reminder. He cares about you, and He cares about me, so much so that He sent His Son to die for us. He wants us to be with Him forevermore. Our hair should remind us of that truth, and our hair should remind us of the reality of that fact. You'll notice, though, that one other thing might be mentioned. As it relates to God, notice again how that's just the opposite of this. Our hair should also remind us about our own status and our own standing. I put that in language like this. The powerlessness and the inadequacies of mankind. It is an interesting reference in Matthew 5.36, isn't it? There in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus directly affirmed and related in the following way. Who among us can make a single hair white or black? Now you'll notice in our modern day we can color it and bleach it and do all other things to it, but who among us can petition aside from those matters, those rather artificial things, and turn our hair black when it is not black? And who among us can turn it red when it naturally is not red, again, without those artificial means? We are unable to do that. And the Lord used that reference to remind us we then ought not swear by our head because we can't make one hair white or black. Isn't that an interesting thing to remind us of just how little our power is? Something that may seem as minor and as trivial as the color of our hair, we can't control it naturally. One other thing about the human family that the hair teaches us and reminds us is stated in the very last thing. It even relates to the promises sometimes that are found in the character of the statements of God's Word. In 2 Samuel 14, we remember on that occasion that as there was this interesting occasion in the life of David, it was there that a story was told. And as Joab responded, having put the words in the widow woman's mouth, came and told it to David, and David was rather angry in his response, and at least he was excited. And in his promise, he was willing to say that there shall not be a hair of your son's head taken. A statement as if this promise by the king was being made. I would submit to you that a statement like that that should remind us that sometimes man's promises fail. His intentions may be noble and they may be good, but quite often the promise does not come to pass. Another example along that same line is found a bit later in 1 Kings 1, 52, when there it was Solomon who made the promise. And you might remember this is a perfect example of the failure. Solomon made the promise with regard to one of the other sons, and yet with regard to the son, not a hair of his head shall fall. And yet Solomon actually had a part to play in the death of that one not too many verses later. Isn't it interesting then how the hair can remind us of so much? On the one hand, God's trustworthiness, His providential concern and care. And on the other hand, man's promises that often lack and often fail to meet their fruition. 
it is a bit of an intriguing thing to consider how much the hair can be a reminder to us of some things that really are eternally important. These two thoughts, though, so far in the lesson, this one to which we've just turned our attention, these characteristics of God and man, and the one that we just used to precede it, the natural order of the hair, does bring us to perhaps another question and a circumstance that for some has raised a number of interesting questions. It may be that the single most often asked question as it relates to the hair might well be its length. What about the length of hair? Should a man have hair that's long? How long is long? Does the Bible say? And so for the last part of the lesson this evening, why not turn our attention and ask a bit more about the length of the hair? Brother Lucas read from 1 Corinthians 11 a bit earlier in the service, and it is to that verse that we will turn a bit later and see what it was that was stated on that occasion about the length of the hair. But let's begin to build up to that point in the following way. It is a self-evident fact, isn't it, that each of us can see that there are some men that have short hair and some men have long hair. And there are some women that have long hair and there are some women that have short hair. It seems to be an abundance, almost infinite in character with regard to the length of that hair found on both the man and the woman. It is, though, a a very probing question to ask. Does the Bible say anything about the appropriate length? Is there a length that's too short? Is there a length that's too long? The fairness of that question leads us to consider a number of potential matters. And I've tried to summarize them all in, on the screen there that you can see that slide on the wall. First of all, I would invite you to consider with me from the very beginning of time some issues that would seem play a role in the reality of this. First of all, at the very outset in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we find the absolute truth that at the outset of time there was God's respectful creation of two distinct sexes, two distinct genders, if you will. And we notice that inasmuch as they are expressly mentioned in Genesis 1.27, the male and the female, it's not as if there was one sex made and they ultimately evolved into two. God fashioned two distinct, distinguishable, independent sexes at the very outset of His creative order. He first created Adam. But in His recognition of the fact that the man was alone, thereafter, you remember, it was God that fashioned the woman from that rib in Adam's side. And with that woman, he brought her to the man. And at that point, you'll notice she was called woman because she was taken out of man. But it is still a fact, isn't it? Two created orders of sexes at the very outset of time. But that directly notes just to the following. God desired and in fact gave the command that those sexes were to be distinguished, to be maintained as distinct from the very outset of the law of Moses. Now you'll notice in Deuteronomy 22.5 that a very interesting statement and a very powerful commandment was therein stated. In the reality of the law of Moses, you remember again the created order had involved male and female. And on that occasion God said, The man ought not wear that which pertaineth to a woman. 
they were to be understood as distinct. He wasn't to dress like a woman, talk like a woman, act like a woman. There was to be a recognized distinction. By the same token, one could appreciate she was not to look like him, act like him, be like him. They were to be understood as distinct. That recognition that God had originally fashioned and made was to be maintained and respected. It is to be noted in relation to that that the Bible does relate a number of passages later to some issues that should cause us some concern, of course. One might obviously note the bodies of the male and female are different. One understands that was a part of God's created appreciation. But you'll notice Deuteronomy 22.5 didn't relate to the body and the way it was fashioned. It was made of what was put on that body. Again, the man should not wear what makes him look like a woman. We can understand in that that the human family, even in ancient days as well as today, has veered aside from the reality of that. On too many occasions, desiring to look like the opposite sex, to behave like, to give the appearance of the opposite sex. One of the problems seen in that arises in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You'll notice on that occasion that Paul did address the church in Corinth. And he made particular mention and usage of the following condemnation. As he made reference to some of those matters of which the church in Corinth had been guilty in days gone by. That is to say, some of them at that time in previous manner of life had been guilty of being effeminate. And that's the word the King James translation uses in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. It might be interesting to ask, what does it mean to be effeminate? You and I might have to look that up. I've taken the liberty of presenting to you the definition. To be effeminate, at its most basic level, the word means soft. And for that reason, the word is used in a number of ways in the New Testament. First of all, it can refer to clothing that's soft. Clothing in that day that was perhaps luxurious or clothing in that day that was particularly known for its softness. And it was on that occasion in Matthew chapter 11 that Jesus asked a question that made use of that word. When He was speaking of John the Baptist, What went ye out for to see a man in soft raiment? You remember that John the Baptist didn't wear soft raiment. He in fact wore that kind of raiment recognized as camel's hair with a leathern girdle. You, they didn't go out to see a man dressed in soft or luxurious raiment with regard to John the Baptist. But the word came to be used and to have respect to these other things as well. To a man that didn't behave in a manly way. That is to say a man who was not manly. Acting far too soft, if you please, and acting in the way that gave the impression more of a feminine character. The same word came to be used in regard to that. You'll remember that Paul condemned it again here in 1 Corinthians 6. A third way that also was used related to homosexual character, especially young male youths that in that ancient day would behave in a homosexual fashion. And you might even notice that sometimes the word catamite is used in some translations on, on that occasion and place. But as we give thought tonight to this matter of understanding a difference, 
if a boy or a male is to act manly and to give the appearance of manly, then might that have some things to say about the potential length of hair that would be acceptable? The length of hair that would be recognized as being accordance to a man? When I used to work in the grocery store, when I was much younger, of course, in, in high school, I can well remember gentlemen who would enter, and as they would purchase their groceries, and back at that time you carried out the groceries, and sometimes questions would arise when he was facing the cashier and thus not facing you, is that a woman or is that a man? And sometimes you didn't know. Things just like that ought not so to be. When one cannot appreciate that distinction, one has directly violated the character from the very outset of time. It was the will of God that that distinction be maintained, not only, of course, in bodily character, that's the way God made us, but in appearance. You'll also notice, you're at the bottom of that slide, that in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 1 and following, it would thus appear that that same desire of the God of heaven continues to this day. It's not that Deuteronomy 22.5 was reserved only for the Old Testament, because in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul brought that teaching directly to you and to me in this first century and in the New Testament era. It is still the will of God that a girl or a woman look like a girl or a woman and a boy or a man look like a boy or a man. In that passage, 1 Corinthians 11 verses 1 to 16, Paul discussed at length the fact that men ought to, of course, look like men and women ought to, of course, look like women. One would thus see that just as surely as that came forth into the New Testament, it is still the plan and will of God that such a distinction be maintained and recognized. That does say something to you and I as parents and as grandparents, doesn't it? We should encourage our children from the time that they're young to respect their sex and to behave and look like that sex that they are. If you're a girl... It's not at all an improper thing to appreciate and be honored for being a girl. And by the same token, if you're a boy, to grow up with a degree of manly character so that you can appreciate that distinction all throughout life and, of course, the honor that accords to being a man or a woman, as the case may be. We, of course, live in a society where that distinction, in some cases, has come to be looked on as a negative thing that it's a discriminatory thing to, in fact, demand that a boy have manly character. My friends, that's, that's the way God fashioned it was. That was His will and His intent. That's not, of course, to say that we pigeonhole all boys to where they must always do certain things because they have different talents and different capabilities, but they always should look like a boy. And they should, of course, grow to look like a man. It will be noted in light of all of that that there are some other things that might be at least asked. And might we state it in the following way. As one looks at the way that Paul describes these matters in 1 Corinthians 11, he expressly states that long hair on a woman is an honorable thing. And she should feel appreciative for that covering that God has given to her or vouchsafed to her. And it was in that very same place and in that same context that we find verse 14 of that chapter. Would you read that verse with me again? 1 Corinthians 11, 
verse number 14. Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? And we thus here find a very explicit reference to long hair on a man. And you'll notice that the word used in accordance to it was the word shame. As if it should be just an understood matter whether one is knowledgeable of scriptures or not to appreciate the fact that long hair on a man is an inappropriate thing. That it is in fact a disgraceful, dishonorable, and shameful thing. In fact, that's the very meaning of this word. And I place that in parenthesis. The word shame in the Greek means dishonor, disgrace, or shameful. And so Paul, in essence, is stating it would seem that even the recognition of the natural order of God's creation should help one appreciate the fact that long hair on a man falls in this category of indeed being disgraceful or shameful. It is an interesting thing, just as it was in the first century, that there are still those who fail to see that. And there are still those who at least fail to appreciate the fullness of the truth housed in that matter. As you give thought to what this means by long, one of the first things that <clears throat> you and I would have to agree to is that God, through His Holy Spirit, does not define for us how long is long. He doesn't say three inches beyond, beyond the shoulder. He doesn't say hair that's longer than five inches. Nowhere does He give an explicit reference to how long is long. And so it would have to be agreed, you and I must not be judgmental or dogmatic about it. But if long is sufficiently long, that one is having difficulty telling the difference from a distance that one is a boy or a girl, it would seem to be too long. For if that distinction is not recognizable, if that character of being distinguished is not apparent, Based on the earlier matters we've studied, it would appear that that is too long for a boy. But might we also say that if a woman's hair is sufficiently short that, again, you can't tell that difference, perhaps her hair is a bit on the side that's too short, those things would seem to be embedded in what Paul was discussing in some detail in 1 Corinthians 11, the first 16 verses of that chapter. Isn't it amazing that there perhaps would be an occasion to mention these other three brief matters before our lesson draws to its conclusion this evening. Perhaps you've already thought about some instances in the Bible where others seem to have long hair. What about Absalom? We've already learned in 2 Samuel 14, 26, he only cut his hair once a year. That meant it had to be rather lengthy by the time that he cut it. And it was on that occasion, again, that it weighed almost a pound in total. We might now ask a question. Do you suppose Absalom would be a noble example of godliness? Would he be one to which we could turn our attention as a noble example for any male, be it young or old? At least at that point in his life, I think we'd have to concur that answer would be no. For on this particular segment of his life, he was guilty of treason. He was out to kill his own father. He had abdicated to the throne, in fact, and even committed fornication. It would seem he was not a rather noble example of godliness at that juncture in his life at least. Perhaps another thought might well be this. As you give thought 
to the matter quite often in the Old Testament that the cutting of the hair was in fact a symbol of grief or affliction or lamentation as the case may be. It is on those occasions we gain a somewhat richer appreciation to how special the hair was viewed in the Old Testament and that it was cut in those times of great grief. For instance, if a family suffered a catastrophe or crisis, the father might in fact have shaved his beard and, and cut his hair as a sign of the affliction and the grief and the difficulty that had come upon him and the family. I have in fact listed a number of passages there at the bottom of that slide. You'll notice in Ezra 9.3 as well as Nehemiah 13.25 two instances when those two noble characters made reference to the shaving of the head in these great times of affliction in the ancient days. Perhaps in Jeremiah 7.29, we see the terribleness on the nation of Judah it's described as the cutting of the hair figuratively. Perhaps having said all of that, there is probably one instance that still comes to mind that seems not to fall in any of these characteristics or categories. It is the case of the one that we'll look at on the next slide. The matter of that Nazarite. We studied about a month ago in the evening lesson the case of the Nazarite and found a noble example of one dedicated and committed to God, one who in fact had voluntarily taken upon him or her the case of the Nazarite vow. And we learned in the course of that study that the Nazarite vow might encompass a briefer period of time such as a month, or it might in fact involve a lengthier period of time as several months. We also learned, though, that there were some who were Nazarites for life. And among that list, we remember some interesting characters such as perhaps John the Baptist. Also, it would seem directly that Samson was commanded to be a Nazarite for life. And we also notice Samuel apparently fell into that list. It is now obvious that since the Nazarite was forbidden to ever cut his hair, that those gentlemen must have had extremely lengthy hair. And yet in the New Testament we just read that long hair on a man's a shameful thing. How do we put together these issues and these features? Men, again, like Samson with greatly long hair, and that was the source of his strength for when he told to Delilah what it was, and she, in fact, was the traitor to him, and told the Philistines of it, they cut his hair and his strength was gone. Doesn't that in fact help us to see some of the things on that slide that I have written before us? You'll notice that I've tried to describe it in the following way. That Nazarite vow again was a very purposeful choice. It would thus seem the conclusion to be that Paul's statement absolutely on target as we would expect. Long hair on a man in general is a shameful thing. The only exception under the Old Testament being that character when those men had in fact submitted themselves to a vow such as the Nazarite vow. You might though notice that there were other things that would have helped to separate them. For after all, they could not partake of any kind of the fruit of the vine, be it even grapes or raisins. They were absolutely forbidden from all access to, in terms of participation in, that fruit of the vine. They were not lawfully able to touch any dead body, even that of a family member. 
And of course, added to that, their hair was not to be cut. It would thus seem they could have been distinguished by the various characteristics of their behavior. But you and I realize today that the Nazarite vow is now part of history. That kind of vow, per Colossians 2, verses 13 and following, isn't taken today. That was descriptive in Numbers chapter 6. Inasmuch as thus there would be no vow like it today, you and I can see that could not be a proper reasoning for a man to have lengthy, long-flowing locks of hair. Isn't it interesting to notice then that those passages do not disagree it's just they're descriptive of various orders of history and the various laws beneath which they could in fact be described. I would submit to you that in our study of the hair, tonight we've seen a number of things that might be summarized in the following way. First of all, that natural created order. Perhaps its color, perhaps the nature of its thickness or its thinness as the case may be. And in that we also saw the great power of God and the protective custody of Him. We also used it to see the inadequacy and powerlessness of man. And then finally we closed our lesson looking more intently at its length and learning that it should ever be the case that the male and the female should be distinguished including the length of the hair. May we thus live in a way that's pleasing to God even with respect to what our hair teaches us and the things about the way we use it in our disposition day by day. Tonight, what might the hair teach you and me about our response to God's commandments? God does expect even the hair that the finest of details should be honored. That includes, of course, the gospel plan of salvation. If tonight you aren't a member of the body of Christ, it may well be that you have never become such a member, and the entrance means are these. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His lovely name as the only begotten Son of God, and be baptized for the remission of sins. If you have become a Christian, a member of the body of Christ, you have known and tasted just how good that is, Hebrews 6 verse 4. But you have perhaps forgotten just how good it was. You've begun to live in a way that's brought shame on the cause of your Master. Come back to your first love. The Lord is anxiously waiting for you to come to yourself and to come back to His faithful side. If tonight we could pray on your behalf, if we could in fact utter prayers of beseeching God for forgiveness on the character of your public sins, we'd be honored to do that. And if tonight we could do that, we would only ask you to let us know in the way we could assist you and that you would do that without waiting, without procrastinating, while together we stand and while we sing.